0: Welcome back to the Spock the Week archives. I'm your host, John the Alba Android. If you are joining us again, thank you and welcome back. This week we will be bringing you the Spock the Week episode, Afternoon Tea, episode 2, part 2. Along with part 1, this was first filmed in May 2020. And in part two, we will be discussing with our guest, Joe Keegan, the science of Star Trek. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the Spock the Week archives. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Spock the Week. Or if you wish, we'd be happy to just have you listening to us. And thank you for that. So now, without further ado, we'll get into the episode.
1: And we are going to go straight into Fire at Will this week. Um, and because uh, we have uh, Joe on the show with us, uh, we are going to pick a subject that um,
2: really I, I know all about. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Just so uh, we can all nod uh, and make, you know, you're going to make us look good,
2: okay? You're gonna sure, make... Yeah, okay, uh-huh. I'll fill uh, sure. in all the blanks.
1: Um, so today on Fire at Will, uh, we are going to talk about the science in Trek
2: um,
1: and how much of it is, you know, plausible, how much of it is complete and utter tosh, and is it anything, you know, like I say, uh, Fire at Will, it is your topic, you go with it, you talk about it, And you go, it's the floor is yours basically,
2: so Fire at Will i'll go i'll go for it. <laughs> take the pressure
3: yeah. off yeah. You, can, I'll go um, you can ask questions now no, I've, 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 some of the science in star trek is obviously in um, borderline fantasy a lot of it is very much grounded in, in the research and the theories that are available mm-hmm. at the time right from the very off of like the original series and i can think of a few great things where the science today is actually superseded what was actually envisaged in the episodes. Um, in particular, there's one particular scene, I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's an episode of TNG, and it's Picard sitting in his ready room looking at his monitor and he's trying to come up with the proof for Fermat's last theorem. And about three years later, I can't remember the guy's name, um, a British mathematician came up with the proof. So very quickly, something that was meant to happen 300 years in the future, was you know superseded three years later after the the, the show was broadcast and um, which, which is incredible we all know about the ipads and uh, the original series but I, I don't know if you've read it joe I've, I've not read it all i've read bits of it but um you being a physicist you know very well was cast and his uh, book the science oh yeah T- yes indeed.
2: Mm-hmm. um
3: i mean have you have you read that
2: i've you read i found it a bit of a difficult read to be honest i've kind of read snippets out of it i don't think it's a book you can read cover to cover like a novel it's you can dip in and out um yeah i think i grew up watching tng and i think that's where i get my love of science from even though most of it was just kind of there's some science they had um science consultants on the writing staff to try and make the science stories that they were telling some way believable. Um, and there was loads of techno babble. And I think I fell in love with the the real science nuggets that were in there, but also the all the techno that they used. Um, and the fact that it was science stories set four hundred years in the future. Um, I think I was born a few a few hundred years too early. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think the twentieth and twenty first century is when I should be living. Um yeah, like if I take warp drive, for instance, or, or take Fermat's last theorem. You were talking about um Andrew Wiles yeah. in nineteen ninety five, the mathematician that came up with the proof. Um, I haven't just Googled it. It's not why I looked across there. <laughs> no, um didn't happen. Um but yeah, take warp drive, there's loads of examples. So there's um the idea behind warp drive is you have some vast amount of energy from some kind of exotic matter and you use it to produce some kind of um compression or expansion of the space time around the ship in order to propel the ship forward that's kind of in a nutshell how it works and it was um a mexican mathematician of qba who came up with a proof of how fast and light travel or warp speed could essentially work in a way and the proof stands up and it follows what we know of science and the rules of mathematics so we just don't have an energy source that's powerful enough to be able to do it at the moment Um, there's other things like the transporter um if you heard of heisenberg's uncertainty principle yes we can't know basically everything about a a subnuclear particle at the same time either we know one thing or the other um TNG did a brilliant thing and came up with a workaround and invented the Heisenberg um, compensator to compensate for the fact that we don't know about the position and spin and angular momentum of electrons and things like that. Um, So they kind of had this unthought out technical workaround. And I think that's what I liked about TNG. It didn't go into so much detail about how things were working. It was just magical technology that they had that kind of explained it away and i was like oh yeah i'm okay with that and that's how it works i don't with my knowledge and with our current understanding of science i don't see transport technology being possible <laughs> anytime soon although do you know what people hundreds of years ago said yeah. men couldn't fly so yeah. i'm quite open minded have, haven't effectively done it with a single particle they've done it with things like photons hmm. which are means a bit of light I think. yes one bit of another possibly yeah and there's things you can do with quantum entanglement where you have you have two electrons really close together um, and you entangle them so whatever you do to one automatically happens to the other one mm-hmm. and that entanglement stays in place regardless of their separation you take the two electrons which are entangled you remove them to opposite sides of the universe and you ping one and the other one gets pinged which is an an idea of instantaneous communication is that relating to the um, the split
3: experiment which you mentioned heisenberg where they fire the single particles through the the two slits that still behave like waves
2: um, you're talking about wave-particle duality. Yes. Um, so the idea is if you take a photon, um, or light photons of electromagnetic radiation famously behave both as waves. They follow all the rules that waves follow, interference, reflection, refraction, diffraction. Um, but they also behave as particles that like they see in the photoelectric effect. So we can use high-energy photons like UV light to... Allow electrons to um, leave, give electrons enough energy to leave a metallic surface. Um, if you do an experiment with a photon that's a, a wave type experiment, the photons will behave as waves. But if you do an experiment that's a particle type experiment, the photons will behave as particles. It's kind of one of those things that it behaves, it can behave as both. No, it can behave as either, but it won't do both at the same time. You can't do a, a particle experiment and it behaves like a wave. Light's really weird like that.
3: Every time I watch a BBC documentary, usually presented by Jim Al-Khalili, mm-hmm. and he talks about that experiment, it, it freaks my mind every time I still... I mean, it was obviously one of the most controversial experiments of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and you know, a hundred years down the line, I'm still trying to get it into my head. That experiment, what happened, it just, it's incredible.
2: Yeah, like, it's, I still don't have a, a solid vision about what light is. Like, if I was to be able to stop a rear of sunlight and zoom in and look at the individual particles, what are they? I've got this little vision that it's a little tiny kind of bubble, of waves with waves inside but that doesn't really make any sense um what is a photon when they talk about phasers being comprised of kind of photons of made and maybe on particles that marriage between a particle beam and a laser and phase and in sync becomes a phaser um or photon torpedoes i think they're just torpedoes that are really bright um or point divines lasers should be able to take them out really easily um, what is that idea of a photon I think it's just a kind of a science tricky way to say oh yeah, emits light isn't it
3: yeah. I mean, a, a word that you hear quite a lot in, in a few of the, the versions of Star Trek is gravitons and when you look at the research now going into gravity waves yes, and where are we Um, um, The last time I read it, we weren't sure if we had or had not actually discovered a gravity wave, but we're certainly, if we haven't discovered it, we're certainly moving closer to actually discovering gravity waves. And I'm guessing, coming back to your point about warp drive, if you can, you know, fold space or warp space in that manner in the way that gravity does, then I guess that's a, a stepping stone on the way to faster than light
2: like, travel or at least
3: proving that it's possible
2: i suppose to your point about um, of what the ability to warp space time gravity does it anyway as a consequence of having mass mm-hmm. so the heavier you are the bigger your gravitational wells is going to be so the greater the acceleration of an object in orbit is going mm-hmm. to be towards it so like the gravity the gravitational field at the surface of the earth is around about 10 newtons for every kilogram. So if you take your mass in kilograms, multiply it by 10, you get your weight, you get the force upon which the earth pulls on you. But if you go to, say, Jupiter, it's got 2.7 times the gravity. So it'd be like carrying 2.7 of you on your back, trying to walk around on Jupiter, you're quickly going to get crushed. Um, The sun's something like 260 times so I don't know about you, I do go to the gym but I couldn't hold 260 of me on my back. I think my legs might give way. That's a squat too far. Um, <laughs> um, there's a point, what was the other thing you mentioned there? What's my it was, uh, it was Gravitons versus gravity. Oh, waves yeah, gravitation, and... gravitational waves. Yeah, gravitational waves. So yeah, we have confirmed... A detection of gravitational waves uh, it was a few years ago now um the ligo detector is basically a giant interferometer it fires lasers at mirrors and basically you measure very accurately the distance in between different legs of this interferometer and their legs are at right angles to each other so you measure the distance in between Two mirrors here and then you measure. it's the same light because it's been bounced off a mirror like that and you measure the distance in this kind of direction and if it's sensitive enough so if if space time isn't worked then the distances should be exactly the same but we got it to the point where it was sensitive enough to detect gravitational waves waves of gravity passing through space and um, and a few years ago there was a little bit of difference in distance that they detected now weirdly the gravitational waves were produced by two colliding black holes a couple of billion light years away and they had something like 30 solar masses each so they were really really massive black holes but like impossibly far away producing waves of whatever gravity waves are that were so infinitesimally undetectable that we're only at a point now where we can actually see that they're actually traveling through space. I think the point is that everything that's got mass will produce gravity waves, but they're so, so tiny. Like, so I'm probably producing gravity waves just now because I've got a mass Completely insignificant. So, yeah, we have detected them. The graviton is something we haven't detected, but it's part of the standard model of physics. It's one of these force mitigating particles. So, the photon is the force mitigating particle for electromagnetic waves. And um, we've got the gluon, which is um, interesting because it glues protons and neutrons together inside the nucleus of atoms, And we've got the W and Z bosons, which are responsible for the weak nuclear force. Um, The graviton is the one that we haven't discovered, but is the particle that we think should be out somewhere in the universe that is responsible for gravity. What we feel is gravity. um, There's going to be a test at the end of this, by the way. I didn't mention that at the beginning. Stephen, do you do you want to go
1: and just get another, uh, get another call going, and we'll do some Star Trek online or something. Let these two feel free to jump in. So, there's obviously like you say, this um, for somebody like like yourself um, watching. Um, I mean, actually we had a Star Trek show, but any science fiction um, program. Do you? And, We'll we'll concentrate on the Star Trek element of it. Is there any moments where you feel that mm, mm-hmm. really gets you? You know, it's like, what are you doing? That is completely utter. Um,
2: All the time, I mean,
1: even even for a layman, some yep. certain things. Um, I mean, like for example, uh, we mentioned the Traveler earlier on in the show. Um, even for a, even for an idiot like me. You sometimes get these elements where they think, right? Okay, we need to do something. What we got? To... There's nothing to prove. There's no science to back it up. Let's just make something up. Um, one of my favourite subjects in Star Trek and in other franchises as well um, is the subject of wormholes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the idea that space isn't flat; it is indeed curved, and you can have two points between them. You know, so it's like um, I, I, I don't know if I'm describing this right, but some um, it was like a bank, uh, like a trampoline sort of thing. So they put a heavy ball in the middle. I mean, this like it demonstrates gravity, but it also demonstrates that you know there is a, a curvature to uh, yes. Um, like I say, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I'm probably you could probably explain this a little bit better than than me, but um, but yeah, wormholes. I mean, are they? I mean. Do they exist? Do they exist in the the way that we see them in Star Trek as portals to travel through? Is that theoretically possible?
2: I think with wormholes that we've had no positive detections of wormholes. Could there be the potential of microscopic wormholes existing like all the time, everywhere? Yes, the the theories kind of stand by that. Um, The Worm, another name for a wormhole is an Einstein Rosenbridge. You might have heard that from the Thor movies we describe the the Rainbow Bridge. Yeah, where Thor travels from Asgard to Earth um pretty much in, instantaneously. So these it's got the name Einstein Rosenbridge because Einstein was involved in kind of writing the theories. To your point about, about one in my classroom, those big Um, rubber sheet, not a rubber sheet, that sounds kinky in the classroom, Um, those big elasticated sheets in a circle and you put a heavy mass in the middle um, and it curves. The the idea is that space is flat, if you put a mass in it, space-time becomes curved. If you put an even greater mass in it, it's going to become even more curved. So you've seen those diagrams of gravity wells where you get a little bit, a little mass makes a little dip. If you have like nearly an infinite mass, say, not an infinite mass, but it would be, big, um, be bigger than the universe, um, like a black hole, mm-hmm. your gravity world is going to become really, 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 really deep. And if you keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger, is there a point at which this snaps and it becomes a passageway to some other region of space? That's, that's theoretically possible. Um Do we have the technology to produce them? No. Have we detected any? No. Um, Could a black hole be able to create some kind of wormhole as you fly past the event horizon, down through the singularity, possibly? But you risk that, um, that horrible death of spaghettification when you are going through past the event horizon and the front of the ship starts to accelerate faster than the back of the ship, so the whole thing gets stretched out and destroyed, including your body and the speak edification, which would be highly unpleasant.
1: What happens to, I mean, there's obviously when there'll be a black hole, um, the gravity is such that not even light can escape it, so that's Mm -hmm. the main black hole. Is there any sort of theory or is, do we actually even want to bother trying to work out what happens? You know, because I've heard I've heard in places before where, and and sometimes in sci-fi. So this is where I don't know if there's a distinction between theory and, and fantasy at this point. But that the black hole itself is indeed, um, like you say, it's a, a portal. A, you know, a, a way of um, a good example of this. Uh, and this is purely the fantasy element of it, is the film um, with, oh, you know, so it's just gone off the top of my head as well, um, Interstellar.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. um, I think I, I I did enjoy that one because I think it, it's probably the, one of the more accurate interpretations of a black hole based on what the theory we have of it maybe, or is it just a... a
2: in terms of general relativity and the time dilation effects of being closer to the black hole, you've got the, the black guy who's basically been in orbit waiting for them to get back from the planet. Mm-hmm. And then when they get back, they've aged less because they're closer to the black hole than he has. So he's a wee old man. Um, so those effects take place all the time. Special relativity happens a as you approach the speed of light. Or as you get deeper into a gravitational well, then time essentially slows down for you. So, there's a, there's, we teach, we teach special relativity and higher physics, and there's a thing I do in my classes every year. And I get them to imagine I leave the classroom, go to my spaceship, and travel at 95% the speed of light, and then return after some time. How long would I have to? How long would the round trip have to be, have to be for me for when I come back that we're all the same age based on them being 17 and me being 42? So because time essentially slows down for me, the passage of time for me is slower, even though for me on the ship it seems to just be passing as normal. If I look at my watch, the second hand's gone by in the same way as it always has, um, But for and for them been on Earth, the passage of time seems the same, gone by at a normal rate. But relative to each other, it's, a, it's actually different. I think we worked it out. If I went away for 20 years and came back when I was 62, they would have aged something like 45 years for my 20. So we'd all be aged 62 years, which is kind of cool. Um, And if it wasn't for general relativity, our GPS systems wouldn't work because the satellites that control GPS are outside the Earth's gravitational well, more than we are at the surface. So it has to take account of that difference in gravity in order to calculate our positions accurately and not send us, you know, take a, a left when you're in the middle of the fourth road bridge. So, there's that.
1: Yeah, I was, was going to say that there is that. Um, I mean, it's compared to sort of like what you've just mentioned about you know traveling um, at the speeds and stuff like that and going great distances and coming back. There is a the small element of that in in when an astronaut goes out to space. There, the time yeah. for them is is it, is it is it faster or slower for them in space than it is for,
2: for us? It's because they're moving faster in orbit of the Earth. And also because they're more outside the Earth's gravitational field, then time will be slower for them, so they're aging less faster relative to tell us.
1: So th- that brings me nicely on to another thing. Is um, time itself? Now we see this a couple of uh, on on more than one occasion in Star Trek.
2: Um, time travel.
1: Yeah, the Temporal Wars um, in the films, uh, the the um, Voyage home mm-hmm. Slingshot effect. Even. Um, now there are I, I've seen both arguments to this that it is physically impossible, and those that say no, it is. But you know, would we want to do it? You know, it's. I mean, it's all theoretical. Maybe. Um, I mean, time is linear. Does it? Does it always go forward? Is it? Can it? You know, can you go back in time? Is it even a thing?
2: I've seen nothing to suggest in terms of what I've read of physics that we could do time traveling the way they do it in sci-fi. I.e. use some kind of machine or technology to instantaneously jump back from one point in time to another point and visit the dinosaurs or the Kennedy assassination or some other event. I think it's not not that this
3: is evidence of time travel being impossible, but... I think it was Stephen Hawking that said, if time travel is possible, where are the time travelers? Hmm.
2: Do you ever do that? Like sit on your sofa and say, okay, if time travel is possible, then in five minutes I will appear from the future. And then you wait five minutes and you don't appear from the future. So you go, yeah, it's not possible. You <laughs> do that all the time. Do you guys know? <laughs> JG, um, um, you asked a question which I totally gloss over about things in Star Trek like that annoy me. Yeah, um, I, I'm just touching on it, but if you want to uh, elaborate on that, they can do,
1: yeah.
2: Yes, so um, interestingly, watching TNG growing up, I, I never really thought about it all too deeply. But as a teacher, when you really have to know the ins and outs of what you're teaching, and anytime somebody makes a mistake or something's a bit inaccurate, my teacher head comes in and goes, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Like in the episode in The Royale in TNG, where they get stuck on the planet and some alien race has made this hotel based on the book of The Royale because a wee, an astronaut died on it or something. Um, it's a weird kind of 1950s casino hotel in the middle of this desolate planet. Um, Jordi is on the Enterprise and says, the surface temperature of the planet is minus 293 degrees Celsius. Never occurred to me before that that that's just a load of nonsense because absolute zero is minus 273.15 degrees Celsius. You can't get anything colder. It's physically, it's not possible not theoretically possible, not possible in the slightest way whatsoever. So there's a a minimum temperature that anything can be because temperature is related to kinetic energy. And as you remove kinetic energy, you cool things down and there'll be a point where you've removed all the kinetic energy. And therefore you're at at the lowest temperature you can get. And Jordy says that the temperature is 20 degrees colder than that coldest temperature. So it's only in the last couple of years that it jumped out of it and goes, like that but recently uh recent iterations of star trek have slightly like they haven't employed anybody with a science background and it's kind of irritated me the spore drive for one now i really love discovery i really enjoy it but the Spore drive was just a step too far yeah uh,
3: there's a couple of it there's a couple of things that they okay. come away with from a science aspect mm-hmm. in discovery. Yeah, boy. A, there's one in season two where they talk about Newton's second law. Mm-hmm. Where to say every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and they're referring to politics. You know.
2: Oh not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not okay. force.
3: No, mm-hmm. not not the force of a rocket or anything like that. And that makes nonsense. And there's one in Picard and it's a, it's the episode that Riker's in where they talk about thermodynamics mm-hmm. and the quote is no good deed goes unpunished but well, that's nothing to do with thermodynamics yeah you know? and it's like it's like it's, they're, pat, they're patting themselves on the back thinking hey these guys are you know the viewers are nerds and geeks uh, let's let's just say something nerdy and geeky yeah. Like, They're
2: doing the Big Bang Theory and they'll love it. And it, it's kind mm-hmm. of something actually. Pandering to the audience but not realizing the audience is actually smarter than that. And yeah. we can we can get tough dialogue and we can we can podcast about it and that's why we love Star Trek in the first place. Um, there's a bit in Discovery where um oh, what's his name, Stamets um says like talking about the mycelial network fungus are the, the veins and muscles of the universe i'm like what hokey nonsense is this when did fungus or spores ever become the veins and muscles of anything outside the earth never um, and then the whole bit about um, fractal neuronic cloning to take a single positronic neuron from data and clone it to get an exact copy of what data was with all his memories intact, I'm like, no,
3: no. And you can put that brain in a human, and they've got the strength of an android.
2: Bullshit! Sorry,
3: my old sword. Okay. Oh, you're falling asleep we're, we're, Yeah, we've activated him again. He's activated.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've not put anything on Facebook about my sheer disappointment about Picard. After there was one show that I was most excited about and seeing Patrick Stewart back as Jean-Luc Picard, and that was the Picard show. And then I watched ten episodes and I was like, "Yeah, this. When is this going to end? Because it's interminably dull." I know they wanted wanted to go for that whole serialized storyline, but with that you have to give us something episodic, rather than just nothing happening every week and me wanting to drag my eyes
0: out and cut my
3: ears I, off. I, I mean, talking
2: about big picture stuff in terms of what
3: they were trying to do and what they achieved, um, I don't. I, I, it's a tale of missed opportunity for me. Um, if ever there was a, a, a television show or a franchise, whatever you want to call it, that is ready-made for today's discerning viewer, with on-demand tv at star trek mm-hmm. you know they've got a universe that has been built for them they've got a backstory that's been built for them it's always had intelligent dialogue the most successful programs in recent years haven't been the flashy short attention back span stuff it's been intelligent thoughtful programs breaking bad you know th- things like breaking bad homeland these mm-hmm. are this is the audience that Star Trek today should be appealing to, mm-hmm. but instead they've gone the opposite direction and tried to make it flashy in some instances. And in the case of Picard, it was they were introducing stuff that to me just seemed like a tick box. Let's have the Borg, but then the Borg didn't do anything. Now, given that it was all about artificial intelligence and is it sentient? Is it not? We never had one intelligent conversation about the validity of that argument through the whole series given that the borg are half sentient half um, biological there was a, a, a huge
2: plot device to have a fantastic yeah. conversation around and we compared to, it... compared to the genesis of the picard plot line <laughs> the measure of a man exactly mm-hmm. but that's where the whole idea around the Picard 10 episodes came from <laughs> and that's like one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever in my eyes uh, and they just didn't uh, just didn't do anything there was so, like you said there was so many big concepts or big set pieces like the Borg ship or those aliens that were going to come that were anti AI there was a the giant Starfleet Fleet that were going to jump in and save the day—they just did nothing. With them. Uh,
3: hmm. And I, I mean, the epi- the season two episode, "Kind Pals," of um, yeah. where the little girl is sending the signal to Data. Yes. And for most of that episode, the mm. conversation is around about the ethics of violating the Prime Directive, yes or not. And there's a great scene where all the senior staff are in the conference room, Pulaski's there and Worg's there, and they all put their case forward, for and against, Mm -hmm. rescuing the girl, or maybe not rescuing the girl, interacting or intervening in the fate of this planet. And again, it's the show don't tell. Every one of the senior staff gets a say, some for, some against, and then they leave it to the audience to decide who was right and who was wrong? And Picard and Discovery's missed that. It's not enough to have Saru saying, We're Starfleet, we are started, you don't do that. Well, we don't do what? Yeah. You know, back it up with words.
2: What and why and have a debate around it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I agree. Um, even for a, for a, for a lineman, um, you know, uh, one of the things that sort of really. Um, got me sort of like, oh, really? Um, was the orchids in space. That sounds like a you know, these massive flower like things that mm. the planet, and, you know, and, and gulf entire ships and whatnot. I, mean, <sighs> I know there's a lot of stuff out there that we don't truly understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit of leeway in that department, yes. But it's it's something that for me it's it doesn't even I mean
2: it, it's, it looks nice but it looks
1: nice yeah but it's like
2: yeah
1: it's
3: um it's not satisfying it's visually stunning it's epic but it's not satisfying from a story and. Mm. Um, Percent, Can't even say the word. It's not sad, from a story point of view. It's not that satisfying. And stuff like that doesn't
2: stand up to a second view, and I think that's the issue. Yeah, hey, I've not watched Picard since this first one. I can't bring myself to actually go and do it.
1: I mean, um, from from an entertainment point of view, I didn't dislike it, but from um, I was expecting a lot more, a lot more from it, hmm. uh, and I. It, it did feel to me like there was just a lot of things put into it to make it look shiny and fancy and stuff like that um there was a lot of a lot of things where it was um it just it, it felt my hope is that it's something that it was just setting up you know the the, the series to get you know get its legs and start running when they come out with season two you know hopefully, comes out of the comes out of the gate on season two because if it doesn't it, it won't um, no less somebody with deep pockets decides to run it for season three but you know um, I mean we, we, we have this all the time where there is so much stuff you can talk about with Picard, with Discovery, um, and you could basically shoot holes in it for ever and a day. You could podcast them
2: youtube video until the cows yeah. come home on that one um it's just so and that's why i think that's why i haven't i know i've been like personally disappointed with the card and having a few wee niggles with discovery um but overall i enjoyed discovery
1: there is a fine line between um expressing a personal opinion and basically ripping into something and at the end of it, yeah. you know. I mean, that's that's the that's the line um, we we try not to cross, which is why I, I try and keep. Um, I can never do this. I you know them too. You know. We're there and there. Yeah, yeah, you know, It's like that. Right, that one, that one in there. Um, you know, it's like
3: I try and avoid things. Just... It's coming back to Joe's point there about the negativity, right? I, 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 have made it clear. I don't like discovery. Well, I don't like. A... I don't like season two of Discovery. Season one, I can watch. Season two, I don't like what they've done with it. Um, But I'll, I'll maybe justify, because I don't think justify is the right word. I'll explain my reasons for not liking it, but I won't call anyone out for liking it. If they like it, fine. There's stuff about Discovery I do like. I love the visuals. I don't. People say it's dark looking. I don't care about that. I actually think it, as someone who runs about with a camera, I love the way the show looks. Absolutely love it. Just rate it better. And don't have any lens flares. Uh, yeah. Please, no more <laughs> JJ. No JJ lens flares, please. Um, you know, I love that. I love the look of Picard. I think both shows look great. They've got a budget thrown at that no other Star Trek show has ever had. Just get the rating. You know, they've got both shows have a great cast, by the way. I actually love the cast. I don't like Michael Burnham's character, but I actually think
2: um, Sonique plays her really well with what yes. she's got. Mm-hmm. She, she does. She, she does too many kind of. She does too many powerful monologues. Mm. It's like a captain's log, but it's just her standing speaking, yeah. rather than being a captain's log that yeah, we used to.
1: It's
2: a pretty cool show.
1: It's uh, I think is it ten years before uh, Kirk and the Enterprise I think it's somewhere roughly yeah so it's only ten years before and there's this wonderful Crossfield class starship you mentioned earlier about the Spore Drive uh, the mycelial network stuff like that Um, Burnham uh, Spock's adopted sister. Um, now, I've mentioned a few things there of which not a single iota of any of that is ever mentioned, or at least if somebody can correct me, please do, is ever mentioned in any other iteration of Star Trek. Now, that brings me neatly onto my gripe about that with season two of Discovery, is that they started writing season two of Discovery, but, you know, it's all going well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, somebody somewhere realised, oh, crap. We've got a crossfield starship, a sister of a sister of Spock. This X, Y, and Z. We need to get rid of all that stuff. How are we going to get rid of that stuff? Oh yeah, let's catapult the ship a thousand and God knows how many years into the future, and then we can do what we want with it. Hmm. That's that's my my. Um, but like I say, I I enjoy it. But do you feel that the the sort of there was, you know, they have a plan from the start to explain all this away, or do you think they just went with it and then realized, you know, oh, um,
3: hide this somehow? Okay, uh, a lot of people for the things that are wrong with Discovery, a lot of people blame Coxman and subsequently Picard. A lot of people blame Coxman. In the case of Discovery, though, um, a lot of the blame for some of the faults with it has to fall at Brian Fuller's door. Because he came up with the concept. He was a Star Trek guy. He came up with the concept of making it telling the story through the eyes of a first officer. I don't think that in itself is a bad uh, concept. I think that's interesting. I think that could still have legs. He came up with the concept of doing a prequel 10 years before the original series, which I think is a mistake. And he came up with the concept of the spore drive. None of that was, um, Alex Kurtzman's doing. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not unsalvageable. We'll see what they do with season three. I'm going to watch it, of course I am. But my alarm's going off that you asked me to put on J.J., but I think yeah. it looks like Joe's keen to say something here. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, well, um, we, we did sort of get off topic a little bit there, but at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, so that brings us nicely towards the end. Um, I would like to invite our guests, for the show, uh, Joe, to uh, say a few final words, if he wishes,
3: or it's up to you. He could 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 plug his uh, podcast again. Yeah, go on, we'll let you go for it.
2: Okay, so as you might already know, listeners, um, I am Joe Keegan. I am that famous podcaster that is on Trek FM's Earl Grey podcast, and we talk about nothing but the next generation. Um, And unlike this podcast, which is only in episode two, we have interviewed some famous people recently like robin curtis who played savik um and what's her face um or what's her name i can't remember her name. No, that's really offensive um who played libby in voyager oh who was libby again uh, harry kim's girlfriend she was she was a half klingon half romulan and birthright yeah and her name was Jennifer Gatti. Yes. Yes. And we also interviewed Clyde Kazatsu, who played Admiral Nakamura. So, you know I, know, I know you're a fledgling podcast, but if you want... Um, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, you can, if you want, listeners want to reach out to me, you can tweet me on Twitter at joyjo 77 uk email me joepodcasts at gmail.com, or you can get me on Facebook if you want to chat. So thanks for having me on, guys. It was it was really good fun. I hope you last. I hope you last for a whole five thousand episodes.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure to have you, Joe. Uh, and
2: we do apologise, but
1: it's all downhill from from here for you, I'm afraid. You know, you have now been associated
2: with us. It's oh, is that my career over? Oh, damn it! <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just bought this new podcast podcasting make as well. Damn it! I'll have to send it back
1: well thank you very much everybody for tuning in if you've lasted this long uh
2: well done um and we hope to see you for the next one um I say, well, you're never getting these two hours back you know
1: that's it <laughs> uh, but you're never coming
2: back you know, what have you done with your life for the last um, I feel so- we've done it
3: already i feel sorry for the people that got to watch and listen to it now
2: i know we've made lockdown so much worse for everybody yes um uh, right
1: <laughs> well let's say thank you guys um we'll leave that there hopefully we'll see you guys again and let's say please uh, give uh, Joe and um the next generation uh podcaster gray a good um it's i've listened to a few of the, the podcasts by the way and it's thoroughly enjoyable it really is um, so that just says uh, goodbye from me and to my co-hosts and our guests. Thank you very much
2: for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much. Welcome, love prosper.
1: Oh. And we are...